0: All right. Let's return to the Book of Romans, Romans chapter nine. Lord uh, willing, we'll be finishing up Romans chapter nine this morning. I haven't been here for uh, several weeks. The Lord's had us elsewhere, but uh, we will continue Romans nine. When you get there, if you'll stand, I will read the text. We stand for to honor the Word of God. Romans chapter nine. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 25. As he saith also in O.C. or Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Esaias, or Isaiah, also crieth concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is a faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Let's pray once again. Father, we pray that you'd help us once again as we attempt to pass into this deep water and understand some of these mysteries, which frankly are so far above our heads, we can just begin to grasp and yet learn to worship you in the process. Father, we thank and praise you that you have condescended, that you have revealed yourself to man, but also, Lord, we must praise you that. There are things that we cannot understand in this life because you are a God that is incomprehensible and indescribable with human mind and tongue. Help us, Lord, to be fed this morning. Help us to increase in our fear of our great God, our boldness to approach because of your great mercy, our understanding of how to relate to those around us. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Thank You, Lord, that You are infinitely high, yet have come infinitely low to redeem sinners like us from destruction. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I don't want to beat a dead horse for here, but I do think that just a little bit of review is necessary. We have been out of Romans 9 uh, for just a little bit. So here we are at, uh, really, if you're going to divide up Romans 9 into three sections, which we've kind of tried to do, uh, we, we are at that third major division in the chapter. And uh, once again, what the chapters 9 through 11 are referring to or relating to, it's God's greater purposes uh, regarding the nation Israel during this present church age as well as the age to come. Now, uh, anyone familiar with the Old Testament... Uh, has got to ask certain questions. When we say Romans 9-11 through is parenthetical, sort of seems like a digression, but once again it is not. It's the natural outflow of somebody who understands God's purposes as a whole. You have to remember, the church at Rome was comprised mostly of Gentiles. But nonetheless, they had been taught the Old Testament. People in that age knew something about the Jewish people who were referred to as the people of God or God's chosen people. And they knew that for millennia prior to their own existence, these people had been given promises that no nation in the world had been given, including an everlasting kingdom that will have no end. And so Paul goes through Romans 1-8. through And we end on that apex of victory at the end of Romans 8 for New Testament believers. And it's a glorious chapter. But the natural question that's going to arise is all right, Paul, what about the Jews? What happened to the people that God promised such great things to? Have they just been set aside? I will remind us all that God's plans of Israel passed. Present, future, are the subject of a tremendous amount of Bible prophecy. To take the position that God has replaced the Jews is to put yourself at odds with a plain interpretation of a tremendous amount of Bible passages. God has made His will plain, but none the question. That, the question, though, does come up: uh, What about now? What about the Jews as a collective nation? What about the covenant with Abraham, or with David, or? The covenant of David that was extended to his son Solomon. What about the multitudes of prophecies that have not been fulfilled? And so we enter this lengthy discussion and explanation of God's greater purposes. And I want to highlight again, it's very revealing as to what it says and what it does not say. We have got to take the position as mortals made out of dust that God never owes us an explanation of anything. God condescends to make Himself known. He's exceedingly merciful. But that does not mean we demand of Him things that He has not promised to give. There's a great deal we simply, in this uh, mortal frame, cannot understand. Verses 1-13 through dealt with God's national election of the Jews, His choosing of the Jewish nation as a whole. And they were chosen, of course, to be His mouthpiece to the world. It was through the Jewish nation He would give the Scriptures. It was through the Jewish nation that the Messiah would be given which would be the Savior of the world. And of course, they were chosen without any merit on their part. And that, of course, led to the natural response on the part of man. Verse 14, is there unrighteousness with God. And any time these deeper purposes of Him come up, that's generally the reaction from people. God's not fair. I mentioned last time, we ought to be very careful taking that premise. If God was fair as we define it, none of us would ever be saved. Our salvation is not because God is fair, it's because God is merciful. It's because God is love. It's because God came down to deal with a sin problem of His own free accord. There's nothing we could do that would force Him to do so. It's simply who He is. Of course, the answer to that question is is no. God is not unrighteous. And then He uses Moses and Pharaoh as case studies. And He demonstrates that election... Which is a Bible word. Some take it to the extreme. We've talked about that ex- extensively. But the word election is a Bible word. It's simply talking about uh, God's choice, but it's always on the basis of God's determination, not mankind's performance. Last time we went through verses 18 through 24, and that statement, I will have mercy, on whom I will have mercy. And basically the reason given there, why does God choose a person? Why does He choose a nation? Why does He choose an individual? And the answer He basically gives is because I am God. Remember the question He asks? Here comes one demanding to know things of God, and he says, who do you think you are? That's how He answers that. Any person, even a brilliant theologian at some renowned seminary, can stomp and huff and gripe about that final answer from heaven, but that's essentially the summary of why God chooses. The tendency is always to look within humanity. It's because of this trait or it's because of this thing they were going to do. The Bible never presents it that way. God is His own reason for doing what He does. It has got to be that way. One of the reasons you and I should rejoice in that, if God's love was based upon... Primarily a reaction to something we've done, and someday that fountain could dry up. But if God's love is based on His own holy character, if God's love comes from the infinite abyss of God Himself, and is just as infinite as He is, then it's also eternal, and it can never end. That is a basis for rejoicing, and the basis for our salvation. To do so, though, is to attempt to explain things God tells us to leave alone. It's basically coming from those who've forgotten their vessels of clay. It's trespassing on extremely dangerous ground. And this is something that happens in higher theology all the time. No doubt this very topic is going to be the subject of blissful ongoing education for eternity, but we've got to be content to leave some things where they they are, where God leaves them. Now last time, verse 22 and 24, is basically one long question. And I want to repeat this too because I think it's important to keep in mind. Number one, the teaching on election is for the Christian. It's a basis of assurance after someone has gone to Christ. There is never in the Bible do you see someone stand up and tell somebody you can believe in Jesus if you're one of the elect. That is a serious mistake. I don't know how many people I've met over the years that are tormented by that sort of, yes, false teaching. The gospel call is that whosoever will may come. That's always how it's presented by Christ Himself, by God the Father, and by the evangelists and apostles and prophets that He sent. God preserves and gives a universal offer of salvation to all men. The vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. In that passage, if you carefully examine it, fitted is in the middle voice. It's not saying God made them for hell. It's saying they fitted themselves by their willful rejection and complicity of fighting against God. They refused to turn of their own volition. There's no such thing as a person on judgment day that's going to have an excuse. Nobody will ever tell the God of heaven you didn't give me a chance. I had no opportunity. Romans 1 fights against that very strongly as do multitudes of other passages. So the Bible does not teach sovereign reprobation that God just consigns some to hell arbitrarily irrespective of their own choice. That's a terrible slander on the character of God. But it doesn't solve every mystery element. There's still a thousand whys and and what ifs that could be shouted up to heaven, and God's answer on many of them is still going to be the same. Because I am God. Basically, the question Paul's asking is, are you willing to accept the fact that on one hand, God in his perfect wisdom without any shred of contradiction in his holy character shows unbelievable patience with certain ones that he calls the vessels of wrath because of their own rejection of the truth and he put up with he puts up with them sometimes for tremendous amounts of time strutting their stuff like banty roosters all the while sustaining their very existence and pouring blessings upon their head daily And that part of His purpose for doing so is to display His power and His wrath when they are ultimately crushed with omnipotent fury. You know the people that go through this life and they claim they're their own man or their own woman, I live life on my terms? You know what they're being set up for from God's perspective if they don't turn? So many object lessons to be displayed in the day of judgment when God's wrath is perfectly vindicated. It's a terrifying thought, but it's true. On the other hand, God has also marked certain others entirely without any merit of their own and determined that they're going to be the trophies of His grace for all eternity. And this doesn't include just the physical descendants of Abraham. This is true of Jews and Gentiles. Remember, uh, free will and election are twin truths. They never cross. The Bible teaches a free will gospel all the time. The backside of that, it's like, it's like one used to say. You walk through this gate that says whosoever will, and on the back side you turn around and it says you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Can you correlate them and explain them? I can't. But we've got to maintain, the Bible maintains both. Election is a tremendous ground of assurance for the believer. Because it doesn't come back to how much you believed, or how sincere you were, or how much you cried. It comes back to God. His determination to save you. His condescension of mercy. His suffering on the cross. His offer of forgiveness. And all you did was take it. So now verse 25 begins. See how it starts? As he saith also in O.C. That's the Greek translation of Hosea the prophet. Basically this is a continuation of God's right... To exercise sovereign dominion over His creation. Here's what he's saying. The the whole last question that he asks, and then he says, just like the prophet Hosea said. In other words, Paul's saying this is no isolated doctrine or some new thing. Remember, he brought up Pharaoh as an object lesson of God's sovereignty. We talked extensively about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. That wasn't without Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Pharaoh is in hell because Pharaoh chose to reject the God of the Bible, but there is a judgment of God that says, you want deception, eventually you can have it. That's one way God judges. And that's one thing that should motivate people to come to Christ without delay. We not only don't have a guarantee that I'll be alive tomorrow, you don't have a guarantee that you'll have the capacity to understand truth tomorrow you continue to harden your heart against the God of heaven. Pharaoh was Exhibit A in that infamous trophy collection. Pharaoh lived just prior to the law. And then, of course, the example given of Moses was after the giving of the law, the second time when he was going up to the mount. Okay, God's sovereignty was there during the monarchies of Israel. The prophets Hosea and Isaiah that are mentioned here. Verse 26 and 27 really gives a snapshot ahead to the day of the Lord, the very end of the story. Encompassing everything. But what he's saying is God's sovereignty is not just based on a few proof texts. It's not let me give you three verses to prove God is sovereign. It's asserted without apology from cover to cover on all the pages of Scripture. Ever think about it this way? Uh, Why did God choose Mesopotamia as a cradle of civilization? Why did God not put the Garden of Eden, say, in Tennessee? You think he's going to answer that question for you? No. Why did God send the flood exactly when he did? Why not a century earlier? Why not a century later? Do you realize that biblically there is no such thing as a natural disaster? Here, Oh, this is hard for modern, modern men to grasp. I realize there's tectonic plates shifting and cumulonimbus clouds and air currents and all this kind of stuff. These are scientific things God has set in motion. But if you pay attention as you go through the Bible, there is no such thing as a hailstone that falls or a tornado that sweeps or a hurricane that destroys without God sending it. Now, we don't know the reasons why. That's dangerous territory. When I hear people say, oh, God sent a hurricane there because of... You don't know that. You don't know everybody's situation there. Stay out of that one. But yet to say God sent it, yes, you can say that. Do you think any of it takes them by surprise? Whoops. Forgot about that one. Not on your life. All of these are controlled by Him. A plane crashes. Fourteen people die. Sixty-one survive. Based on what? Who chooses that? Why? Why? How about the simple proverb, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord? What is that saying? God can turn that man anywhere He wants to if He chooses to do so. How about a tougher one, Luke 10.3? Christ is upbraiding the cities of Israel. Listen to what He says. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which had been done in you... They had a great while ago repented sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Did you catch that? Now, if you're paying attention to what He said, what question is going to come up? Lord, if You knew, if those miracles were sent to them, they would have repented. Why didn't You send them? Do you know what the answer to that is? Because I am God. We know God's character that they had a chance. And they had whatever chance God gave them and He's a righteous judge but the deeper reasonings he does not tell us that extends to the stars and constellations and each speck of sand upon the ground. I last summer I built my children a sandbox and put two truckloads of sand in there. And I look at that sandbox, you know what I see? I see a pile of sand. Now let's say I were to come up to you and say, "Let me tell you something amazing. I can look in that sandbox. I know exactly how many grains of sand in there are in there." What's more, I've come up with names for all those grains of sand. And I can tell you a unique fact about each one. Now you'd be amazed by that if I could do that. People from all over the world would flock to try to figure out how I had this great wisdom. And yet we treat it as a small thing that God has a perfectly intimate knowledge of the entire universe deeper than that. You know, there's no such thing as a rogue molecule, a rogue atom. Not one escapes his eye in intimate control, knowledge, not one. I think that's what Maltby Babcock had in my when He penned the words. This is my father's world. He shines in all its fair. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. It wasn't pantheism. That was an assertion of a sovereign God who was everywhere all the time. And he was learning to recognize that fact. Now, if sovereignty is manifested in the least of God's works, how could it not be manifested in His greatest work, which is rescuing the sons of Adam from destruction? Now, this passage basically is framed around three quotations from the Old Testament. And basically, here's what they show. Okay, first of all, it's always been God's nature to call something out of nothing. Secondly, God has generally chosen to accomplish His work through a small remnant of the population. And third, without God's intervention and ongoing restraint, every single nation or person, including you and I, would become evil beyond all description. Notice verse 25 and 26. I will call them My people, which were not My people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the same in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not My people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Now that quotation comes from the book of Hosea. Chapter 2, verse 23. Chapter 1, verse 10. Kind of combined together. And it's talking primarily about the Jews. You remember the backdrop of Hosea? Those of you that were here on Wednesday nights? Hosea is the prophet with the broken heart and the broken home. You remember? It's not a pattern to be followed today, but God took this prophet and He said, go take a wife essentially from the prostitutes. That's a strange thing for God to tell the guy to do back then. And so He does it. Basically, He's setting Hosea up to show Hosea the prophet the pain that God Himself feels regarding Israel's treatment of him. And so He takes this wife and she bears one son named Jezreel. She bears two more that apparently are the product of immorality. She bears a daughter and names her lo Hama, which means no mercy. And she bears a son and names him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. And so the prophet's own painful household is a continual witness that the Jews deserved no mercy, and that effectively they were not the people of God, that generation. What a rebuke. Yet out of that bleak picture comes this promise quoted. Notice what he says, in the same place. In other words, not because you climbed some mountain of ascent. Not because you traveled the world wide and found truth. Not because you increased yourself. He says in the very same place where you didn't deserve mercy. In the very same place where I said you were not my people. God declares you are the children of the living God. Now, the final fulfillment of that is yet to come. It's after the Great Tribulation. But that principle is manifested everywhere. How do you view the creation account? Hopefully, you take it literally because the Bible explains it literally. God created the world out of nothing. But we make a mistake when we think that is a unique event in the sense that it's not God's nature to call something out of nothing. Keep in mind, when this old world and cosmos is destroyed, God says, behold, I make a new heaven and a new earth. So even that's going to be repeated. But the principle of God calling something from nothing has been manifested all throughout history and will be yet manifested in the future. Every time God raises up a people or a nation or an individual to declare His own name in the earth, He does so by calling something out of nothing. Remember 1 Corinthians 1.28, God's chosen the things which are not. To bring to naught things that are. Deuteronomy 26.5, Moses' farewell address in the book of Deuteronomy. And here's what he tells the Jews. When you come into Canaan, they were to bring an offering of the fruit of the land unto the priest. And here's what they were supposed to say. A Syrian ready to perish. That's Jacob. A Syrian ready to perish was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few, and there became their nation great, mighty, and populous. In other words, when they brought the offering, they were to remember that God had called something out of nothing. Where was the Gentile world prior to the gospel of Christ? What would have happened to you and I on this side of the world if it had just stayed a Jewish message. A Gentile world was thought of as dogs. They were dead in sins. They were utterly doomed. What happened? Why was the torch of the Gospel passed to North Africa, then on to Europe, and then into the English-speaking world that would eventually become the greatest mouthpiece of biblical truth that the world has ever seen? you think that was because we deserved it? Not hardly. It was because God determined that's what was going to happen. Because God called something out of nothing. What were we as individuals? I'll tell you what we were. The illegitimate offspring of a once noble race mixed with total depravity and anarchy of the soul. You and I, apart from God, were lo ruhama, without mercy. We were low ami, not his people. But if you belong to Christ in the same place where that was true, while you were yet dead, trespasses and sins in the very act, God, for his part, comes to you and you believe in Christ and says, You are the child of the living God. I am going to call something out of nothing. I'm going to give hope where there was none. I'm going to give forgiveness where there was none. I'm going to give life where there was only death. I'm going to give sight where there was only blindness. I'm going to give purpose and direction where there was only confusion and despair. We breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. and Spiritually speaking, we become a living soul verse 26 to 28, we see God has generally chosen to accomplish His work through a small remnant of the population. Quoting Isaiah from chapter 10, which again, the context is the final restoration of the Jews. It's looking towards the final day when they do occupy, or Christ occupies the very throne of David in a literal Jerusalem. That's yet to come. But yet He's applying it to the situation here also. Here's what he says Isaiah cries out, that means in agony. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. Here's what he's saying Even though the masses, even in Israel, claim some sort of allegiance to God, only a remnant is going to prove to be genuine. Now, at the end of the Great Tribulation, a remnant of Jews are going to remain and all be saved in one day, all those that are alive. But once again, this very principle runs throughout the Scriptures. Now I want to be careful here and give one caveat. When you hear the word remnant today, be careful you understand what somebody means. So-called remnant theology is a severe heresy spreading throughout a lot of churches, and it's causing damage. Essentially, what it, what it amounts to is the institutional church, as they call it, has gone corrupt. We all just need to pull out and be disjointed floaters because there's problems in the church. There are problems in the church. Read 1 Corinthians and tell me there weren't problems in the first century church. But to take that and say God's abandoned His plan, that Christ said the gates of hell would never prevail against it, that's a serious, monstrous problem. But nonetheless, think of the history of God's people throughout the world standing for truth. Noah's day. How many got in that ark? Eight. Out of how many? Millions? Billions perhaps. Abraham, you have one man chosen out amongst total paganism. Then you have Joseph among his 12 angry brothers. Then you have the Jews at Mount Sinai in the golden calf incident. And Moses stands up and says, who's on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And one tribe out of 12 shows up. That was Levi. Twelve spies are sent into Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good, like the psalm says. Right, a remnant. During periods of revival in the monarchies, only a remnant sided with God. In the New Testament, you have 12 men used to turn the world upside down who are mostly uneducated commoners. In any given society, uh, true Christians have rarely been the minority. During the tribulation period, the Holy Spirit's removed. There's a remnant of true believers and a remnant of Jews that actually believe in the Jehovah God of the Bible. But what about today? The same is true. Despite what popular religion and the megachurch movement tells us, God is not looking to build a majority. He's never operated that way. He is the majority. And He's quite content to do His work through a properly understood remnant so that no flesh should glory in His presence. That's a consistent thing that's been true about God through the Scriptures. Some will still believe today Truth will be vindicated at the last. But for now, we're called to stand for truth. To love the souls of men. To be concerned for society for the Lord's sake, but not to run and tuck and hide and panic just because the masses don't fall down and repent. God can yet do that. But we need to be consistent regardless. Thirdly, Without God's intervention and ongoing restraint, every single nation or person would become evil beyond all description. Here's Isaiah once again crying out, except the Lord of Sabaoth, that's the Lord of hosts. That's a, new, that's a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word. Except the Lord of hosts had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. Now that comes from the first chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. It's interesting, here's what he says in verse 4 of that same chapter. He cries out to the Jews and he says, ah, oh, sinful people, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. How's that for starting a message? But he was preparing the way for the evangelistic message in the latter half of his book because this is what they needed to see. He tells them, ah, oh, sinful nation. Now let me ask you a question. In all of the Bible, Which two cities are synonyms for total wickedness and God's devastating judgment? What are they? Sodom and Gomorrah. Even a world that hates God is familiar with those cities, right? But think about what Isaiah is saying. These two cities where among all those thousands, not even ten righteous could be found. These two cities that even a man of Abraham's spiritual stature, begging God to spare them, still had to be destroyed. And they went down in infamy, buried under fiery sulfuric rock for thousands of years. In fact, they were just recently discovered on the southeast shore of the Dead Sea. For millennia, nobody even knew where they were. Do you see the irony here though? Let's take your average Jew. He's reading Genesis 18. The scene in Genesis 18, you've got Father Abraham up on the mount. He's looking down in the plain and he's praying for Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh Lord, will you spare it for 50, for 40, 30, all the way down to 10? Now the average Jew, when they read that, who do you think they were picturing themselves on the side of? They automatically linked themselves to Abraham. That's my father, That's the progenitor of the Jewish race. That's my people. So now Isaiah comes to them and he said, if God did not intervene, every one of you would have been down in that valley buried under a volley of flaming rock from heaven. And don't you forget it. I mean, how about us? Can our mind even conceive What monsters of sin we would be, or could be, if God didn't intervene. What does he say in Ephesians 2 when Paul writes, "...and you," it's almost like you, of all people, "...and you hath he quickened or raised to life, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience." Among whom we all had our conversation, our lifestyle, and time passed to the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. In other words, we were by nature just like the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. I see what he's reasserting about God's sovereignty. God's nature is to call something out of nothing. God is able to do mighty things through a remnant and He's always done it. And don't you ever forget if God didn't intervene in your existence and restrain you and keep you from becoming what you might have been you too would have gone down in history just like them. That's entirely of grace. Well, what's the point? In typical Pauline fashion verse 30 picks up with the question what shall we say then? In other words, alright what, what, why am I saying this? Remember verse 16? God's talking about having mercy. He says, It's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Uh, that, that's very similar to what He says in John 1, 12, and 13. Essentially, here's what He's saying. Mankind has got to come. God says, whosoever will may come. Man has got to respond by faith, but yet we've got to remember it's not our act of coming that makes God merciful. Do we get that? He already is merciful. We simply come and take him at his word. That's one of the terrible errors of this whole. I mentioned it in the discipleship hour, the period of history in the late 1800s when you had the mourner's bench and, and all of this. And the whole goal was to get people forward to, you got to cry more. And you got to. What that was leading them away from, though, was Christ. Can somebody cry when they come to Jesus? Sure. Do they have to? No. Wrong emphasis. What's the gospel condition? Whosoever believeth in him. Not whosoever believeth and crieth, believeth and mourneth, believeth and tarrieth, or a thousand other things that men have tried to add. So, nothing in us creates in God a response of mercy. He simply is merciful. And look what he says. Uh, What shall we say? The Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. He says the Gentile world as a whole wasn't even looking for righteousness. Once again, I repeat, that's the central thrust of the Gospel. It's not, do you want to go to heaven? Have you been convinced how utterly unrighteous you are before God? Do you understand that God, as a righteous judge, has to punish every single sin without exception? And as you realize that paradox, you cry out to God, Is there no mercy? Is there no righteousness for me? And ah, you see, you behold the Lamb of God. Oh, there's one that came, that took all the wrath of God in my place. God hasn't bypassed judgment, He's carried it out. Jesus said, It is finished. And you see that all the wrath that you deserved in hell has been poured out upon the Son of God. By faith, you take the righteousness that God gives you of His own free will. But you see, the Gentile world wasn't even looking for that. Jump ahead. I'll just give a preview of Romans 11. One of the amazing things taught in Romans 11. Do you realize that if you're a Gentile and you belong to Christ, one of the you are one of the byproducts of God's dealing with the Jews. You understand that? Romans 11 teaches that through their fall, through their rejection of their Messiah, they've been given over to judicial or temporary blindness. And he says, through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. But then he says, that's not the whole picture. God's going to use the Gentile world to provoke them to jealousy to say, hey, wait a minute, that's our Messiah. The Gentile world is part of that tremendous greater program of God. It wasn't because all the nations of the Gentiles fell on their face and decided to beg God to be merciful. God extended them mercy. And you and I sit here clear across the world. And to know the Lord Jesus Christ as well because of that mercy. Not because our ancestors were such wonderful people, mind you. So the gospel didn't go to them even in response to their desires, it went there because God determined it. What about the Jews? He says they followed after the law of righteousness, but they've not attained. Now, tell me something. Someone says, I'm following after the law of righteousness. At first, that sounds kind of noble. Until we understand what's really going on at the root of that. At the core of that type of thinking, here's what it is Behind Judaism, Phariseeism, Sadduceeism, and every single other ism that's been invented by mankind today is the same faulty satanic premise. Here's what it is. To some degree, half a percent, 1%, 20%, 50%, 90%, to some degree, I can take care of the sin problem myself. I've marveled. I've probably told it to you in the past. If you could come up with a scheme of salvation where you told men 99% of it God will do, you do 1% people would flock to that. Listen, the human nature is so depraved. It wants to grasp at some straw to be able to boast and say, look what I did. But the Gospel cuts human righteousness off at the very knees. It's designed to make us worship the God of heaven and totally turn away from self and self-sufficiency. That's why Paul attacks so militantly any mixture of works in the scheme of salvation. Even 1%. He says if it's by works, it's no more grace. If it's by grace, it's no more works. There's only two ways to righteousness. There's you earn, or there's Jesus has done. There's the righteousness of the law, which says this do and thou shalt live. There's the righteousness that comes by faith and takes the salvation that's been provided. Because God's wrath has been satisfied. And God has given a solution to the sin problem. Well, however beautiful or organized or structured or historical any system of religion may be, even Jewish, if it's not based upon the free grace of God, determined that He will have the glory, He will remove sin, He will remember iniquity no more because the wrath of God has been completely satisfied in Christ. It's a proud, stubborn refusal to humble oneself before a holy God and take the one way of salvation that He has offered, period. Period. You want a quick comparative religions class? There's two. There's thousands of false gospels that in some degree mix man's works with what God has done. And then there's the power of God unto salvation that says Jesus paid it all. He doesn't need to repay it every week. He's not re-sacrificed in the mass. It is finished. Salvation has been purchased completely. I mentioned before that you could look at the Jewish Temple Institute in Jerusalem. It's a fascinating study. Tremendous fulfillment of end times prophecy happening right before our eyes, but it's not a good thing. As they rebuild that third temple, again, it's a visible reminder that they still reject the Messiah that came 2,000 years ago. They're still trying to make the temple articles which all pointed to the lamb of god that was going to come and when he came they rejected him and now they're trying to rebuild it all and go back to the system of blood sacrifices. In fact just this week Trump and Putin of Russia were asked by the Jewish temple priesthood to help us rebuild the third temple and make it a reality. What's well, going to happen? It's going to be housed by the antichrist in the tribulation period. It's going to happen but it's against the real gospel. Alright, now what happens to all who attempt to come this way from Cain onward? Well, they must eventually stumble and go down. Now here he quotes Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28. Here's what he says. They, end of verse 32, the Jews stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Sion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. God says, look, I'm putting something right in Zion. Right in the center of the world. Just like He's done throughout history. Where is that ark placed? Right there in the middle. Produced one of two reactions. How about the Jewish temple in the days of Solomon? Oh, people knew where it was. One of two reactions. The Lord says, I'm going to place in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. In other words, it's not God's intent that it causes offense, but He knows full well that's going to be the reaction in the minds of some. It's interesting. Hopefully you remember back in Matthew 16, the play on words he uses with Peter. I say unto you, thou art Peter, Petros, and upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. He's talking about a little stone and a massive bedrock. What do you think He used here? Bedrock. A rock of offense. Now if you're walking down a certain pathway... And all of a sudden, this massive bedrock appears in your way. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it depends on your perspective, doesn't it? Here's one. He's got a light that's barely bright enough to see the next step ahead. He's determined he wants his way. He's going to live life on his terms. His whole goal is to get down the pathway that he's determined for himself. And all of a sudden, he walks into this massive rock. Well, you know, that guy is going to trip over it and probably curse that stone. Let's say you got another guy. He's walking this pathway knowing he's a humble mortal and he's not sure where he's going. But he's looking for a foundation on which to build. What happens when his eyes light upon that rock? He sizes it up. He sees how solid it is. And you know what he does? He falls down and rejoices. And then he begins to build his house on that rock. Just like the guy in Matthew 7. People are always going to have one of two reactions to Christ. Jesus made the statement, either you're going to fall on this stone and be broken, or it's going to fall on you and grind you to powder. There's not but two reactions to Christ. There's no such thing as neutrality. Somebody either says, I'll take Christ now, I'll come to God's way of salvation. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Every other answer is to reject Him. I'll wait till next week, that's to reject Him. I'll wait till I'm older, that's to reject Him. I'll have more time later, that's rejecting Him. And that's gambling that you're going to have tomorrow. It's sad, I was reading an article just yesterday. You guys remember Sully Solenberger, the hero pilot of Flight 1549, landed in the Hudson River, 2009. Amazing story. It was a heroic thing he did. It really was. But I read an interview with him yesterday, and I thought, how sad. They're asking him his perspective on a variety of things, on fame, on fate, on different stuff. And the most conspicuous thing in there is the total absence of any fear or glory to God. It's all humanism. It's all trusting in self. It's all controlling your own destiny. And one of the questions they asked him was, what is it that attracted you to flying? He said, well, first it's a sense of freedom. You kind of break away from the bands of earth. But he said, the second one is a sense of mastery over the craft, over the machine, over what happens to me and how I handle it. And I thought, what a sad statement whose life, uh, from a man whose life almost ended from a flock of geese. But that's how so many today look at religion. What is it that attracted you to such and such church? Oh, it's the freedom. I get to do what I want. I get to break away from the bands of this and that. And it's a sense of mastery. self still lays uncrucified on the throne of my life. I still live it on my terms. I, I call the shots. I decide what's right. I have caused to boast. Such a person can only stumble at the stumbling stone at the last day. Can you honestly say, sitting here this morning, my sins are forgiven. And if someone asks you, how do you know? Does your answer come back to human philosophy? Or does your answer come back to God? Is it because I did this or that? Or is it because God delights to save sinners? Because Jesus paid it all. All I did was come to Him like a humble beggar and take His free offer. And I found him everything he says he is and more. There's not but two ways. There's not but two reactions to the stumbling stone. And all of us are going to walk into it sooner or later. We have the choice to do so correctly right now and to come and take the righteousness which comes by faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that... Lord, you have made salvation simple but it cuts so badly against their own pride. Lord, we have to look at it in wisdom and say we thank you for that too. Our trust in self is a curse. Our viewpoint, apart from what you say, is a lie. Father, you're the searcher of hearts. You know the state of all sitting here. Lord, are there some who have never believed in Christ? Are there some who are clinging to something they've done? They've been dunked in water. They've eaten a piece of bread. They've helped their neighbor. Lord, show them that all of those are a faulty foundation. And they must come entirely by faith. I pray, Lord, you prepare us to be heralders of the the good news in this community. Help us, Lord, to have a greater care for the souls of men around us. So many are in blackness and they don't even know it. Help us to remember what we used to be. Help us to remember what we've been spared from. Help us to remember that we are not worth saving. But we have a merciful God who desires that all will be saved. Thank you, Lord, that you are merciful. In Jesus' name, amen.